I hate to even break this up. Goodness gracious, hey. Hey, everyone's real excited. Hello, I'm glad to... Hello! Hi, Shauna. Glad to see all of you this morning. In case you're new or you just wandered in, my name's Brett. I'm one of the pastors at, uh, at New Life, um, and uh, we are going to be in James 5. Without further ado, uh, if you've got a Bible, turn in uh, towards the... It's near the uh, back of this um, collection of ancient documents that we call uh, the Bible, uh, and James chapter 5, or if you have an electronic device, that's totally appropriate as well. Um, before we read the passage, uh, I know, you guys can say, I know, I know, I'm throwing everything off. Before we read the passage, I, I don't do this very often, but I thought I'd uh, begin with an icebreaker question. I know, I thought I'd begin. Okay, so here it is. It's a, it's a difficult question. Um, you may have to really put your thinking caps on for this. When was the last time you desperately wanted <laughs> that situation to end? <laughs> no, wait, 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 wait. Some of you are really going to have to think about this because... Yeah. It may, think back in your memory, it may be some circumstance, some, some struggle, some hardship that fell out of your control, that was causing you restless nights, loss of sleep. It may have been dragging on longer than you wanted it to. When was the last time that you desperately wanted, <laughs> whatever it is, give it a name? If, it, if it's appropriate, maybe you could give it a number. Uh, like, if you want to use the number 20 twice, that's totally, that's allowed. We, we can totally do that. Um, that this question, um, this, it's a farce of a question. <laughs> but um, it tees us up very nicely uh, for what I think James is uh, getting at here as he's wrapping up his letter. James, early Christian leader, a leader of the Church of Jerusalem in the first century, brother by blood to Jesus of Nazareth, who is trusting that Jesus isn't just his brother, but Jesus is his Lord, is what he calls him in chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. Um, it's at the center of what James has pinned his hope on. And so let's read it here. It'll be up here on the screen. It'll also be um, in front of you. Uh, James chapter 5, starting in verse 7. Therefore be patient, brethren, brothers and sisters, until the parousia, the parousia of the Lord. The farmer, we'll come back to it. Uh, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the parousia of the Lord. Uh, the Lord is near. Um, do not complain, brothers and sisters, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets, for example, um, who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed, blessed, who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome, the, the goal, the, the, what the Lord was taking everything towards, the outcome of the Lord's dealings. The Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. 
This is the word of the Lord. And everyone said, thanks be to God. Uh, Jesus, we invite you into this space. You're here, um, and we're hard-hearted. A lot of times we're um, closed-minded. We have ears that are stopped up. Um, And we uh, invite you to wake us up to your presence and to speak right now because we need gospel. We need gospel, so come and speak right now. We're your servants, and we're listening. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So James starts by telling all of his original audience, his original hearers, and everyone living through 2020 uh, to be patient. Uh, It's just, does anyone, when you say it, it's just like, Oh, the worst. It just tastes, it tastes, they're words that taste terrible, aren't they? Be patient. I hated hearing those words as a kid, and I don't like them any, like, can we be real? We don't like it anymore as an adult. Um, it's like somebody's just adding awful words onto, like, already awful feelings, because that's the only time anyone ever tells you to be patient, is when you've already, like, I've got all this uh, turmoil in me, and, like, longing, and, and then someone just takes a great big old dollop of, be patient, and throws it on, t- it's just the worst. When I was a kid, I, um, I had these terrible bad feelings because there was a DuckTales game. Any DuckTales fans in the, yes. Um, there's a DuckTales video game coming out for the Nintendo Entertainment System, the NES, and it was months away, and I had no conception of months or even, like, hours when I was this little, um, and I felt terrible about it, and I brought these feelings to my mom, and you know what? She dolloped right on top of all these terrible feelings. Be patient. Mom, I trusted you, and you just threw all of that horrible stuff, all that verbal stuff onto my feelings. Um, I know it's hard to imagine. Uh, I have bigger things in my life than ducktails these days. that's not true. I've, uh, this is the third time I've preached this sermon. It is not true. It's not in my notes. But there's a DuckTales reboot, and it is incredible. If you haven't seen it, I'm giving you the good news that there's a DuckTales reboot, and it is possibly superior to the original. It's incredible. Anyway, I know that's... Go check it out. Um, but I do have things that rival DuckTales in my life now. I'm thinking about, like, my job and, like, about my money, like money and how do you make ends meet? How do you keep the lights on? How do I keep my, my family healthy? Because there are viruses that are like ravaging. I don't know. I'm not telling you guys anything new. There are virus, there's this virus going around. Um, and it's killed like a, I, last I checked, it's like 156. Uh, when I preached this a few days ago, it was 152,000 people. And so like 4,000 people, three or 4,000 people have died in the last uh, just couple of days. Uh, I'm, I'm all of a sudden like aware of like incredible systemic social injustices. I'm like waking up to them and being like, oh my goodness, I think I might be participating in these in ways that like I, I didn't choose to, but like, man, I, maybe I should be doing something. These things are weighing on me and I'm not trying to weigh you guys down with anything because you guys are actually like, I look around the room and I see like you guys carry a lot of stuff in here too. And we've got bodies that are broken, like, <laughs> literally, um, but, like, also, like, um, like, that are 
not healing the way they, they should or that you want them to. You've got like relationships between friends or between loved ones, between family members, between significant others that are strained in the room. And like we've got, um, if you're watching online, perhaps loneliness is just like, weighing you down in like a crippling way or like some of you might just feel totally the word that came to me during worship was stranded just feel like stranded and I don't know what all of this is doing and so like hearing the words of James when in the midst of all of this it's just the worst. You hear it with me, like with me, I'm with you. Be patient. And it just sounds terrible. So let's stop saying be patient. Let's just say it in Greek because it sounds a lot cooler when you say it in Greek. Macrothumeo is how you say it in Greek. You guys want to try? Macrothumeo. That's right. That's right. That's, it's way cooler. It doesn't taste terrible in your mouth when you say it that way. Macro, you guys can break it. I'll break it down. Macro is like big, right? Big, large, long, and then thumao is the verb that's gotten thrown up against that. And it is the word that has to do with getting angry. And so one scholar actually described this. This is the opposite of being short-tempered. The word literally means long-tempered. It's like to have a long fuse. The Old English, uh, the King James will sometimes translate this, depending on the context, as long-suffering. Long-suffering is what we've heard before. It's being willing to, to carry something, being willing to wait, being willing to endure something for a, for a long time. It's like the fuse is just like the Mission Impossible fuse is coming, and it, that hardship is just like burning, and then you just keep the fuse, getting the fuse longer and longer. Because when our fuse is short, eventually we... Well, we detonate. <laughs> that's what happens. We, we blow up, you know, whether that's at other people, which is actually what James is warning us about in verse 9, about not uh, sniping at one another and not judging. Um, or we blow up, we detonate, and we destroy ourselves with, like, really, like, bad coping, self-medicating kinds of behaviors. And so James is saying, like, keep the fuse long. Keep getting it out there. He says, verse 8, he says, strengthen your heart. Verse 10, he says, endure. Keep it going. And the question that I want to ask, I'll ask for all of us, is why? Why? What's the point? Is like my immediate response. Like, if, if there's a fuse to a bomb that's lit, What's the point in lengthening the fuse? I'm like one of those tear off the band-aid quick, blow the bomb up quick kind of people. You know, just like let it go. What's the point? If the bomb is like going to blow, let's just get it over with. You know, why not just let the despair take over me? Why not just let the anger lash forth at everybody around me? And James's answer, of course, is the fuse isn't going to be burning forever. It's not going to burn forever. We, he, in James's answer is we're looking for something. We're waiting on something. We could say it this way. Um, we hope in suffering because God is arriving. It'll be up there in a second. We hope 
in suffering, because, I told you, um, because God is arriving. That's why we hope. The, um, the Greek that uh, James uses right here, uh, when he's describing what we're looking for, he uses a very uh, special word, a very tech, it's, it's literally a technical word in the ancient Greco-Roman world. Parousia is the word he uses. We're waiting on the coming, the arriving of, of someone. It's the word that you would use um, when royalty would show up in your village. It's the word that you would use if Caesar was coming to your, your settlement or your town. It's, it's the word for like the physical presence of someone so significant actually being with you. And James uses this very special word, parousia, parousia, as um, he uses it for his brother, the Lord is coming. He, he's equally happy to call his brother the Lord and also read his letter, like analyze it. He's also, he'll, it's totally interchangeable to use the Lord for the ancient God of Israel. Either way, it's totally applicable to both of them. This is possibly the earliest document in the New Testament, and already the divinity of Jesus is super high. The Lord my brother, the ancient God of Israel, the hope that they've been clinging to for millennia, is arriving. The Lord is arriving, like super soon is what he says. And he uses a cluster of images to get at this. In verse uh, 7, he describes it as a farmer is the image. Verse 10, it's the ancient prophets of Israel. And verse 11, it's Job sitting in ashes with a piece of a shard of pottery scraping off his sores, scraping at them. And they're all willing to endure. They're pushing through. They're keeping the fuse long for, for different reasons, actually. These three different images have three different reasons. The, the farmer, of course, is waiting. He's enduring because that's what you do. That's part of life. That's part of the human experience. There are dry seasons and there are times when you just got to wait. There's hard soil and dry ground that you got to work through, and you got to wait until a season of rain, the earlier the late rains. Part of life is just waiting through the dry, knowing that the rain will come. The second image is like the ancient prophets of Israel, and it's not just part of life for them. They are actually suffering because of something they're doing. They're doing the right thing, and they're suffering for it. They are on the outskirts of society suffering because um, they are, verse 10 calls it, uh, they're speaking in the name of the Lord. They're doing the right thing, and they're suffering. And then poor Job, he's like the climactic image, and he's totally, like, he's Let's get real. He's us. <laughs> it's like most of the time, yes, we know that there are seasons of dry. You have to wait on the rain. Yes, we sometimes suffer for, the, for, the, um, for doing the right thing. But most of the time, we just had, like, don't have a clue. We're just like in a hurricane <laughs> mess. And we're just like, what is going on? We're standing in Job's shoes. We're sitting in his ash pile because Job never gets a glimpse. By, the, the, the reader might get some sort of perception of what's going on in the way that the story is framed. But Job never gets any insight into the mystery of his suffering. He never gets to peek behind the curtain. All he has to do 
he has to just choose how he's going to respond to it. And he just chooses humility. He chooses to, like, bow down before mysteries too great for him. And you know how Job ends, don't you? You remember how it, it's got an Easter ending. Job goes down into ashes, and God raises him up. The, the Lord is arriving in Job's life, and Job finds himself more prosperous, more alive, more joyful than he was before his suffering. It's like the enemy just came driving in in one of those big World War II tanks, came crusting a hill, landed in the middle of Job's life, and God thinks to himself, a tank, I can steer that. I could, could even make new roads with that. God is arriving with Job, climbing in to what the enemy meant for evil and steering it towards what James calls right here a good outcome, a good telos, a good goal. He takes the weapon of the enemy and he moves it towards a good end. We get really confused, though, when we read through these cluster of images um, and when we read James's encouragement about the coming of the Lord because this word, parousia, has, um, it's, it's built up like it's got a whole freight train, like cartloads of meaning and, and tradition behind it. It's become almost synonymous with the, uh, the second coming of Jesus, like at the end of history, like when we confess the creed, the creed that you walked by when you came in has a part where it talks about Jesus will come at the end of history to judge the living and the dead before he recreates all things and invites us to participate in new creation. Um, that is what this word, parous- and by the way, we should say that is the church's hope. I'm not taking anything away from that right here. That's like the world's hope. That's our own, the world's a mess. <laughs> we need somebody to sort out everything, and that's what the church throughout the ages has confessed, and we believe here. But James is meaning more than just the second coming of Jesus right here when he uses this word parousia, the presence of God, of the Lord, of his brother, is arriving because he keeps using what uh, Bible nerds, if you analyze it, would call perfected verbs is what he keeps using. Verse 9, he says, uh, the judge is standing at the door. Like he's already there. He's like right on the threshold. Verse 8 says, the arrival of the Lord is near. It is engeken. It is at hand. It's like so close. It's the same word that Jesus used when he would come, when he arrived and he said, the kingdom of God is engeken. It is at hand. It's like arriving in me. It's the same word that you, um, kids in the room, kids downstairs, it's the same word that you would use if you play that game. Let me teach it to you, where you take your index finger and you put it very close to somebody's forehead, engeken. It is at hand, and it is so stupid close that it slowly drives whoever you're doing this too crazy. They're just like, ah, stop! It's like so close, I can feel it. That's what James is encouraging us with. He's at the door. He's stupid close. 
He's real, and he's not just encouraging them with the idea that, well, in at least 2,200 years or 2,020 years, Jesus is going to come back. The year 2021, oh, it's going to be great when Jesus, that's not just, that's like, that's hard for people who are, you know, being, suffering persecution or struggling in the first century. That's not much of an encouragement. Oh, some, some my grandchildren aren't going to even be encouraged by this. He's saying something that encourages them too. He's saying that the arrival of the Lord is at hand. It's about more than just the end of history. The arrival of the Lord is actually good news in the midst of our suffering within history. I'm not a fortune teller, and so I can't tell you um, what that looks like for the year 2021 or for the end of 2020, but I, um, I can't share details about the future, but I can just open up my heart a little bit about the past and share details about um, what this has looked like for us as a family because um, 2020, people talk about how hard it is. It is hard, um, but it's got nothing on 2017. Uh, 2017 was the worst. Like, I was talking to Joy about it, and it's, it was just the wor- We both agreed it was the worst year we've ever lived through. Um, it began with a, a whole lot of excitement. We had a one-year, uh, almost one-year-old running around, January uh, 23rd. January was her birthday um, for her turning one-year-old in 2017. And um, we were very excited about that. She was running around, and then we were very excited, too, because my um, Joy downstairs uh, was very pregnant, and we were um, about expecting our second daughter in February, like three weeks later. It was really exciting, and we were like buzzing with excitement. We got this baby. We're so excited. We got, um, we're going to the same hospital. We got the same midwife even. We're going to the same, going, making the same doctor visits. It's like we got our punch card to the hospital. We know our way around. The ice machine's over there. We're like telling people where to go, and then um, we're so excited. January was pretty good, but then once February 10th hit, when Daisy was born, it, was, it took just the briefest, it was like seconds after her birth that um, we knew we were in for a different kind of year um, because uh, you could feel like the concern growing in the room. Her um, breathing wasn't very strong. Her voice for crying wasn't strong. It sounded like um, a baby crying at the bottom of a well is what it sounded like. You could hear like a baby wailing, but it was like super far away. She was awake, like her eyes were open, but she wasn't like moving, (laughs) like at all. Um, You know it's bad when a doctor comes walking in and holds their phone over, like subtly, they're not wanting to advertise it to me, holds their phone over her um, little tray that she's cooking under, and uh, then walks out the room and, like, picks it up, and is, like, talking to a specialist on the way out. Like, nobody knows what's going on. Um, and within a, just like, within the hour, she was taken to the NICU at, um, at the hospital at Lutheran, and then within a couple of hours, I was actually in the front of an ambulance um, because she was being transferred to the NICU at, um, at Children's in Denver, um, Turns out, uh, you've, you see her walking around downstairs, she has a, a genetic condition, centronuclear myopathy, that um, affects all of her uh, muscles. And so um, that kind of put all the pieces together and we understood like what was going on. We were really relieved when we got that diagnosis. 15 months later, 15 months later of waiting, of wondering, like sitting in the dark, of watching her struggle to do like the most normal things, like like she's a three-month-old three month who can't lift her head. She can't turn her 
head when she's on her back. Um, she can't eat very well at all. Um, those months, those hours, those minutes of heartache and worry. Um, we've got a one-year-old running around, ripping through the house. We've got medical equipment arriving at our house. Um, like phone call, we're answering the phone and we're sending this because we just looked at whatever test results. Um, we, in those months, we experienced heartache after heartache in 2017. I was pastoring a church in Northwest Denver and we, um, my family experienced some really deep betrayal and we ended up having to like step away from that ministry. Um, but we were in a parsonage and so stepping away from that ministry actually involved, um, didn't just mean leaving our community, it meant leaving our home. Um, and so we threw some rugs down on the concrete floor of my mother-in-law's unfinished basement, and uh, we moved in with uh, two kids and uh, question marks around our, our youngest. Um, I uh, took my master's degree, and I returned to my high school job uh, for $15 an hour, and I injured my foot in the process of all of this, and uh, I wound up working on crutches, to insult to injury. Um, while I was doing this job, Joy had a root canal, Daisy had um, throat surgery because she had floppy vocal cord, their muscles, and they, so they had to trim a little bit off of there. My brother-in-law had a heart attack. Um, our car broke down on the side of the highway. I sent over 200 resumes and personalized cover letters nationally across the country to churches, and I had two interviews. Daisy wound up in the ICU two more times before the end of the year um, with, um, for about two weeks total. Um, and then finally, December came around. And it's like 2017, like, just get out. Don't let the door hit you. Just get on out of here. It's December, and things are looking just amazing. And I landed the sweetest job. I landed like this dream job with this dream church, this amazing church. And then one day later, less than 24 hours later, I, um, beyond circumstances beyond anyone's control, um, I got a phone call and the job offer had been rescinded. We were back at square one. Like we're just, and I, um, it was a Wednesday when I got the phone call. Wednesday, December 6th. And I had a 10-hour shift at my, um, at my high school job that day. And I clocked out. And I walked into the winter air. And I sat down in front of the steering wheel, this frozen steering wheel. And um, I had been furious and despairing all day <laughs> as I've been working. And I expected to get out in my car and beat the, the steering wheel senseless and to just rage with my voice until my voice was raw is what I expected to do. And I got out and I just, and I didn't. I, I, I couldn't. I just put my head on this frozen steering wheel and it was like I was a deflated human being, like a balloon that all the human spirit has gone out of. It was like 2017 had won. You win. I'm done. You know, 2017 had beaten me. It had beaten me to a bloody pulp. It had beaten every prayer out of me. Some of you know what that's like. 
if you're, if you're honest. All, we all know what it's like, but if you're honest, it beaten the pr- every prayer out of me. I didn't, didn't want to pray. I didn't have anything left to say to God. The only thing that I had to say, sitting there with my, my head on the steering wheel, was, I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't understand. The suffering had just gotten to be too much. I don't understand. I don't understand. And then God spoke. I didn't expect him to. Um, but he did. It was, I've only had like a count on my hand in my life, spooky experiences where I would say that, that I would describe it this way. But it was like suddenly I was pierced. I was pierced by like this gentleness. And it was four words that seemed other than me. I was saying, I don't understand. I don't understand. You don't have to. You don't have to. It's like this weight had been lifted off of me. Those words, they're like totally God words, totally mysterious. They didn't tell me anything that I wanted to know. They, uh, they didn't magically transform any of the circumstances, but suddenly the Lord was arriving in the middle of history, in the middle of our mess. I was suddenly aware that God was stupid close. He was in Geekin. He was at hand, and he had been the entire time. Even when we are unaware, God is arriving. And I still, to this day, I don't want to romanticize it. I don't know all of what God was up to in 2017. I don't know how he was making new roads with the enemy's tank. But he was. He was. I still don't understand how God uses the weapons of the enemy for the sake of good, our good and the good of the world. But he does. We could say it this way. You don't have to understand to endure. You can trust. God knows what you don't and holds on when you can't. Especially when you can't hold on. God is holding on to you. Especially when you cannot cling to God one more minute. God is. He is clinging to you. you need, it's for you this morning. He's clinging to you, to your family, to your circumstances. He's there. That's the gospel, by the way. Lest we forget it, let's talk about Jesus for a second. That's the whole story. The Lord arrives in history when no one cares, when no one is aware. All of humanity is unaware, and then he climbs onto the weapon of the enemy. He climbs onto the cross, and he turns evil towards good, and he keeps clinging to humanity. When we are at our worst, he makes the worst thing that we could do in the world to be an expression of his love for us. And so whatever it is in that you feel like, I've just got this horrible thing that like, it's the worst thing in the world. We've done worse to God and it's the supreme expression of his love for us. You're not getting rid of God. He's clinging to you. Maybe you're someone like me and you need to, um, you need to understand. 
you need to understand everything is the way that I, is the way I work. Um, you want to understand the specifics of what's happening at this moment in history of like, why is this happening to me, to, to my family, to my loved ones, to the world? You don't have to understand. You are relieved of that soul-crushing burden. We could say it this way. Our heads are not made for omniscience. Our hearts are made for trust. You're not created to know everything. You're not created to understand everything. You are not all-knowing. You are not omniscient. I am not. And it's okay. It's okay. You actually weren't made for omniscience. You were made for trust. We were made to be children childlike, to offer up our hearts and our lives like my three and four-year-old do to me, to offer up whatever it is to someone greater than us, to hands stronger than ours, and to rest in the knowledge that we will be taken care of. You are being taken care of, and you will be. This, this morning, um, that's the invitation as we're coming to the table. Jesus is inviting you to trust, especially when you can't understand. It is the enemy's tank. Don't be confused. It's the enemy's tank, but Jesus has climbed in to steer. You can trust Jesus with the tank. Let's say it this way, and someone needs to hear this. Because of Jesus... Your story ends in Easter. That is the unconditional promise of the gospel. That is the promise God makes to us before we give one wink about him. You, you will end in Easter, and we are invited to trust it. To trust it when life feels like crucifixion trust it. Easter is coming. And so this morning, Jesus, we invite you into our history, into our lived circumstances, into our mess. We trust that you are compassionate and full of mercy, and we invite you to open our eyes to the ways that you are at work right now that you are present with us right now, that you are saving right now, providing right now. Please help us trust that you are making new paths in the world. You are making new paths in us, in our souls, with the things that certainly are evil, but you are steering. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is arriving, and it doesn't depend on you. Believe the, go believe the goodness of the gospel. Believe the goodness of the heart of God.